Welcome to Movie Maker. My name is Tim Malloy. This is our 100th episode and our first episode with one of my favorite movie makers ever, Adam McKay. You know, all of his projects. It's kind of wild when you think about all the great things he's been involved in. He co-founded the Upright Citizens Brigade, became the youngest head writer of Saturday Night Live when he was 27. He directed movies that my brother Ted, what's up Ted, quotes constantly, including Anchorman and Step Brothers. He co-produced the bonkers great Eastbound and Down. And then he got serious, but kept a darkly comic streak and earned an Oscar for The Big Short and multiple nominations for Vice with Christian Bale as Dick Cheney. Uh, Vice is one of my favorite of the things that he's done because it just doesn't do anything that you expect it to do. I think it is really underrated. He also executive produces Succession, which is probably my favorite show. And he has an upcoming series about the Showtime era LA Lakers. His next movie is a Netflix film called Don't Look Up that stars uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Blanchett, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, and Jonah Hill, among others. I know it sounds like I'm just listing a bunch of names of famous people as a joke, but no, they're actually all in the movie, which we will talk about. One thing you may not know about Adam McKay is that he's also great at podcasts, and that's the main thing we talk about today. His new podcast series, Death at the Wing, is about how drugs, tragedy, and the Reagan revolution defined a decade of basketball. He and his team look at the tragic deaths of players like Len Bias and Benji Wilson, some of whom you may know and some of whom you may not, and talk about the policy failures by Democrats and Republicans alike that, let's just say, didn't help. Death at the Wing is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and I highly, highly recommend it. One of the goals when this podcast started 100 episodes ago was for the host to not babble on incessantly and to let movie makers talk about their craft. So I have a lot of people I want to thank for helping us get to 100 episodes, but I'm going to save it until after this interview with Adam McKay. He spoke to us from a couch in an editing room in Los Angeles. Uh, what are you editing? We're doing uh, the new movie, uh, Don't Look Up, with uh, Jen Lawrence, DiCaprio, and uh, Streep, and a bunch of other people. It's a comedy. Yeah, I'm actually in Boston, so I'm well aware of it. Uh, every time Leonardo DiCaprio went to the grocery store, there was an article about it in the paper. <laughs> I saw that. Um, yeah, we had a, we, I mean, it was weird, because we were there during the quarantine, but, you know, I grew up in uh, Worcester, yeah. So that's that's I know that neck of the woods well, and it was it was good to get back to that Boston Italian food. <laughs> Why did you shoot in Boston? Uh, you know, you guys have a big tax incentive. Plus, uh, there's great diversity of looks there. You have like your city, you have your neighborhoods, you have different styles of neighborhoods, modern, older looking. You've got the water, so. It's a big sprawling movie. It's obviously kind of a, you know, uh, comet's going to hit the earth is the premise. So uh, it was it was perfect for that. I didn't realize until Death in the Wing that Len Bias almost played for the Boston Celtics. That's oh yeah, Len. One of many things I learned from the podcast. What was your in on it? Was it was it Len Bias and growing up in the Boston area when that happened? It was uh, just. From years of conversations with friends, if you, if you look a lot of these individual players, not all of them, but the ones we cover in the podcast, there's been featured documentaries made about the death of Len Bias, the death of Reggie Lewis, Drazen Petrovich. Like each of these players has been covered individually 
But about seven, eight years ago, I just started wondering, like, has this ever happened that so many players died in such a condensed period in any sport ever? And I really couldn't find any example of it. I looked at the NFL, of course, with concussions would be the closest and the cover up they had on concussions. Um, so that's really where it came from. Why did we lose all these amazing, talented players in this 10, 12 year period. Uh, why then and why not since? Thank God. Yeah. You know, I, I went on Apple and read the reviews of it and most of them are very good. But the ones that aren't good tend to say this is just anti-Reagan propaganda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's weird because I'm not really a huge basketball fan but I love politics and I love that era too. So this really worked for me, but you weren't able to really link specific policies to these deaths. Yeah, it, it's, you know, look, it's it's funny when we get those reviews, we laugh about them because we're like, no, it's just kind of history. Like this all happened, you know, <laughs> and and by the way, the Democrats, you know, they were part of some of this, too. Uh, you know, they the, the draconian drug laws that were passed were heartily passed by the Democrats as well. And we we certainly give them equal blame um but you know how it is with the the current day right wing they don't care if it's history or anything they don't want to hear about it um so yeah some people are annoyed by that but um the, uh, when we really started digging into why all the players died in this period we realized the answer was just much bigger than any specific one cause in basketball it's just a time the 80s became a time for the nba specifically of exploding fame and wealth. You had the advent of cable television, you had tax rates being cut. And then at the same time, the communities that a lot of these African-American players came from were under really direct attack uh, yeah. from yeah. the federal government. So uh, it, it's not necessarily that all of these policies caused the deaths, but many of them resulted from them, many of them harmonized with them, many of them surrounded them. So we really kind of figured out that this this looking at these tragic deaths uh, really was a lens into a revolutionary time in American history, a time in American history that changed the entire course of our country to the point where we are where we are today. It's really interesting to me, two things. First, that you are focusing on Reagan now and that you focused on Cheney with Vice, which is an amazing movie, in the middle of the Trump era when everyone else in Hollywood was kind of focused on the current president and you decided to go back in the past, you also seem to be really engaging with Republican politicians on policy rather than on, um, you know, some of the typical talking points, which are your racist, your awful um, sexist, all of the stuff that we can say about Trump and be right. Why have you decided to go and look at actual specific policies? I mean, it, it, that's really where all the change lives. Uh, there's nothing that makes the powerful billionaires or CEOs or those that now control our government happier than when we uh, you know, paint ourselves red and blue and fight amongst each other because the whole time they're just stealing us blind. And they love it when people are racist. They love it when people are upset about race. They love it when we're talking about anything except, you know, them hijacking trillions of dollars from working people in America. It's one of the greatest in history that's happened in the last 40 years. Um, 
Also, I really feel like the whole story of the uh, Republican Revolution isn't really told. Uh, it, we sort of act like it didn't happen or it's just Ronald Reagan. And it's an amazing story. And if you're a Republican, you, you should be applauding it because it works like a charm. Uh, there's some great books that have been written about it, like Invisible Hands by Kim Phillips Fain and Dark Money by Jane Mayer, who's in the podcast. But I feel like that's the story of what happened to America in the last 40 years. And we need to understand it in order to make decisions about it. Yeah, I, I like what you said about they love when we paint ourselves red and blue. And I also read that Don't Look Up is largely going to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of about navigating Twitter and navigating the world today, where it seems like as soon as you say an opinion on anything, people try to put it into one box or the other and then cast you in with that lot, paint you as extreme as possible um, and disregard everything you're saying. So if I say, you know, I think um, we should have socialized medicine or something then I'm automatically a communist and here's all the other crazy stuff I believe. Is that what you're responding to? And how do we break that up? Yeah, and in fairness to people, it's, it, we're, we're dealing with an explosion of media, social media interconnectedness that I don't think any of us ever could have imagined. It's creating new types of communities. It's creating new types of exchanges that have never existed in the history of homo sapiens ever. So we, we definitely are confused. We're definitely angry. Uh, this happens to coincide in the U.S. with a time where your average citizen has never had less power uh, than right now. So it makes sense that the little bit of power we do have, which is to yell our opinions on social media, to get angry and outraged, would, would, would go down like that. Ooh. So I understand why people fall into it. I'm, the really insidious part is when you add in giant, uh, corporations like Facebook that that use algorithms to harness that outrage and frustration for profit, then you really start to get into a dangerous zone. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to look at it all like just an old fashioned scam that you would see out of the movie like Drugstore Cowboy, where Ooh. your friend tends to have a seizure in the front of the store. And while people take care of them, you, you know, rip off the back of the store. And that's really become our culture for the last 40 years is distraction, uh, you know, misinformation, exaggeration, outrage, and all of it is in service of just we are being ripped off. Wages have been flat for 40 years. Services have been cut. The rich have gotten preposterous, you know, 100 billionaires now exist. And, uh, and I say this as someone who, who's overpaid here in Hollywood, but the level of wealth we see at the top 1% is incomprehensible. So yeah, it's, I, I try and look at it like it's an amazing story. There's that book by Kurt Anderson that it's about what we're talking about. It's literally called Evil Geniuses. It's a great book if anyone gets a chance to read it. And they really were brilliant about it, how they really got into what, what our beliefs are, what our internal narrative is. And they changed it. Uh, a lot of powerful people, a lot of think tanks, a lot of different marketing firms, <laughs> PR firms changed the American narrative. And it's, it's an incredible story. Unfortunately, now with, with a bunch of pressing concerns, it's a very dangerous story. So if that, that's part of what Don't Look Up lives in. It lives in that incredibly complex media sphere, that polarized media sphere of a, a world where everyone's trying to use everything as an opportunity rather than a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think Succession is really skillful at this too, because you don't really beat us over the head. You kind of make us root for some of these people who are just inheriting wealth uh, and root for some over others at different times. We kind of look down on them at the same time we look up to them. It's all very messy, and it, so it doesn't come off as preachy, but it definitely makes the point that, I mean, for me at least, nobody should be able to inherit more than, let's say, $10 million. Yeah, I mean, I, I there's a great documentary. Have you ever seen the uh, Jamie Johnson uh, documentary called Born Rich from about 15, 16 years ago? No, sounds amazing. Oh, my God, it's so good. He's a Johnson & Johnson heir, and he's dealing with growing up where you're going to inherit half a billion dollars, $800 million, probably in today's money, billion and a half, two billion. And it's, this is a story no one wants to hear in a time where everyone's struggling paycheck to paycheck and struggling to cover their medical bills. But the real truth is when you inherit that kind of disgusting amount of money, it screws you up. And he interviews all these other friends of his who are in, you know, inheriting crazy amounts of wealth. And one of them's tried to commit suicide. One of them's a drug addict. One of them's clearly a sociopath. One of them's depressed. The funny thing is the only one in the whole documentary who comes off fairly grounded is Ivanka Trump. <laughs> and then you realize it's all a front. She's just putting on the greatest act you've ever seen. But um and that's really what I loved about Succession was that it, it really showed how, yeah, okay, they don't have to worry about their money, but man, I would never want to be in that family. So how do you persuade people in this, uh, this is going to sound so cliched, but the current environment? I mean, because there is such a resistance on the right to the left, quote unquote, preaching to them or shoving ideas down their throats. We just saw it with the Oscars where people were really mad, even though that wasn't a very political ceremony. How do you, as, as a creator and also a funny creator, get the other side to listen? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's really anything I'm going to do or say that's going to you know, convince, say, someone that believes in QAnon or someone that believes that you know, universal health care means you're a Marxist. I mean, those types of extreme beliefs in the face of, you know, the rest of the world has universal, all the other industrialized countries have universal health care, but somehow in the U.S., do you believe that? You're a communist? I mean, that's just crazy. That That's just not, that's so disconnected from reality. That's someone who's had their brain so scrambled by a lot of really high-priced uh, persuasion propaganda that there's nothing really you can say to it. So I think, you know, I, I, I've tried a lot of different things. I've clearly done big comedies. I've done stuff that's more dramatic, like Vice. I've done stuff that's kind of funny and a little more dramatic, like Big Short. And, and I think I just, it really in the last couple of years have to just reconcile, you know, myself to just doing my tiny little part, which is to chronicle it, you know, to try and have a sense of humor about it, to provide some perspective. And and for the people that are engaged to, to provide interesting storytelling uh, for the people that aren't, uh, there's kind of not much you can do about it. I mean, we're we're in a place where I don't think that 40, 45, 50 percent, the right wing has become so extreme in this country that I, I I'm not sure there's any magic sentence or magic movie or magic song that's going to make a difference. Is it possible that producing anything that has a lesson or a advice to impart is actually making it worse because they dig in more i mean they uh, I, I i not only think that's possible i think that's that's true i i think that the more the worst thing you can do 
is to talk down. The worst thing you can do is to lecture. The worst thing you could do, and believe me, I've had times where I've done it. There's no no doubt about it. Out of total frustration, I've argued with people on social media. I've tried to just straight up chronicle what's happened, and uh, I, and I won't mince words about the right wing in this country. It's a it's a dangerous political body. I mean, it's a white nationalist extremist organization, uh, the only political party in the entire world that denies climate change. So. But when you talk about individual people that are a part of it, I don't believe the individual people are abjectly evil or foolish. You know, I think a lot of it's a byproduct of a broken political system with soaring income inequality, very little opportunity for for 90 percent of the country, 80 percent of the country. So this is the kind of stuff that happens when you have a broken system like that. Um, But, yeah, to, to, to chastise to lecture uh, that we know that doesn't work. It makes it worse. Yeah. So with death on the wing, I don't get the sense that you're trying to moralize or anything like that. I get the sense just talking to you that this is what you're really interested in. It's combining all of your passions into one thing. I think it's a great summary. I think that's exactly it. I, I didn't make this show to convince anyone of anything. I actually, and it's the beauty of podcasts that you can do this. I, we entered the podcast with the question intact. Why did this happen? Yeah. And we, every interview we did with every bit of research, we've been finding our answers to that question. And in that sense, it's unlike any project I've ever worked on. Certainly we do research on other projects um, and we do tremendous amounts of research, but I've never, I've never done it where while we're making the project, we're learning. And I've really, it's just really been satisfying and incredibly interesting to me every single one of these episodes is a revelation uh and and something i'm learning uh uh, about the time even though i lived during it i don't know every nook and cranny of it and there's been 20 30 times where someone in an interview or a bit of research comes back and i'm like oh my god i didn't know that (laughs) yeah really just an astonishing show i've learned so much listening to it and i've started to think of so many things in different ways and been really moved by it. I mean, the part that blew me away was, I don't want to name names or ruin it for anybody, but you know what, I'm not even going to get into it, but it's a, it's a conversation between the brothers of someone who's been shot and the person who shot him and the direction that it goes in is just such a incredible human moment and a beautiful human moment about forgiveness that I didn't expect to come up in the middle of a podcast about, you know, the NBA. It was, and, and shame on me. That was stupid of me, but it was. I, I, no, no, it wasn't because I had the same reaction you did. I did not expect that to come up. And I, I was very moved by it and got, you know, I think you can maybe even hear it in the interview. I got, I, I think everyone listening to it at that moment got very choked up. It was yeah. really a, be- a beautiful, surprising moment. Uh, it's a perfect example of, of, I didn't know what my conversation with that that man would be like. And it, it was really, really, really touching, beautiful, surprising uh, amidst a dark tragedy. And, and the whole experience has been like that to get to talk to Jerry West, one of the greatest players in history, one of the toughest, nastiest competitors in history, and hear him be so vulnerable about his mental health issues while we talk about a young player, Ricky Berry, who unfortunately took his own life. That was also an amazing thing for me. I mean, this guy's a stone cold killer, uh, a dagger thrower on the court. And to hear him really be vulnerable and open was just incredibly moving for me and inspiring. 
Yeah. How has this informed your Lakers series, Showtime? It was this, did this spring out of that? Did that spring out of this? No, this was an idea I've had for like seven, eight years. Uh, I almost wrote it as a magazine article years ago. Uh, a really talented comedy writer, friend of mine, Tom Sharpling, used oh, yeah. to write Slam. And I was going to call him and be like, hey, Tom, I want to write this article. And then I got busy with something and I never did it. Uh, so this was something I had always planned to do. I think the only way they're connected is that I love basketball. And I think basketball is an important center of American culture. Uh, so when the Perlman book came along and then when Max Borenstein, Rodney Barnes had the show, I leapt at the chance to do it. So there are some crossover themes as far as the change that went on in America in the late 70s and 80s. There is some of that. But no question, the Lakers show is more the story of the Showtime Lakers, all the characters involved in it. And it's an incredible story. But both really just come from my love of uh, basketball. Yeah. Did you grow up rooting for the Celtics? I did. I was a crazy Celtics. I was a crazy Red Sox and Celtics fan. And then I moved to Philadelphia around fourth grade. <laughs> and I had this weird whiplash moment where because the Sixers were fun man they had Dr. J and I sort of stayed a Celtics fan in the high school and then the pull the push pull of it the tugging of it sort of turned me a little bit into a Sixers fan but always a bit of a Celtics fan but I stayed a Red Sox fan I'm still a Red Sox fan and uh but yeah kind of crazy into the Celtics then crazy into the Sixers now I'm just an NBA junkie I'm not necessarily one team I'll watch anyone play any night so the crazy bird magic rivalry who are you rooting for <laughs> I was uh, I was bird 100% bird <laughs> loved Larry Bird loved it tried to imitate his shot imitate his moves his no look passes that was my guy uh, yet everyone loved Magic Johnson. I mean, it's not like because I was rooting for Bird didn't mean I hated Magic Johnson because he was a absolute magician. I mean, he was a conductor on the court. So I would watch the Lakers games and eat those up too. And all my friends and I would watch him and marvel at Magic Johnson. And then, like I said, eventually I just stopped being a one-team guy and now I just watch the game to watch the game. Man, that's... I don't hear a lot of sports fans who say that. I mean, it seems like you've got to sort of pick one just as your way in, like almost the way that politically to be involved in politics, you've got to have a side. I would say politically, I, I'm that way as well. I, I don't consider myself a Democrat. I'm not crazy about the DNC by and large. Um, certainly not a, a, the Republican Party is uh, where it is now, especially. Uh, but I, I guess I identify more as a Democratic Socialist. But even that I'm not a I'm not doctrinaire about. Um, I would say, actually, I'm a, a, a moderate liberal, I'm a moderate European liberal. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. I never thought of that before, but you're right. I'm not a crazy rah-rah fan for one team. You do see that in basketball a little bit more. There are people that just love basketball and like watching good games. It's a little more common for that sport than other ones. Well, it's just always fun for me. I mean, when somebody's like, the antichrist and then they join your team and then you're like oh they're cool they're all the, right the best especially <laughs> like 
back in the eighties too, you'd have guys that would get in nasty fist fights with each other. And then like two weeks later, you know, Rick Mahorn joins the Pistons and suddenly everyone's friendly or Ron Artest going to the Lakers. That's one of the best ones ever. <laughs> Ron Artest went after Kobe and then walks in the locker room. They're like, Hey, how you doing brother? And that's it. It's on. Uh, how do you like making podcasts versus making movies? Do you find it a lot easier or is it harder because you can't use images? Oh God, it's definitely not easier. It's just as much work. Uh, I mean, well, with this show that we did, Death of the Wing, because, you know, we have a team of producers on it. The amount of interviews we've done for it, the amount of editing, we have original music for it, uh, sound mixing. I mean, it's, it's, I, it's the equivalent of like making a documentary. I, I, I'm not sure it's that much different. I mean, anyone who hears the show, you'll hear it's, it's elaborate. Um, so we always joke when it comes to making movies, it's easier to make a big $50 million studio movie than it is to make a $2 million indie film. Making a $2 million indie film is about the hardest thing you can do. When you make the $50 million movie, you've got a budget, so you don't have to sweat as much, even though you would think the bigger movie would be more difficult. And I would say that's true of this podcast as well. It's, we've been working on this for a year and a half. You're the first person to finally say <laughs> that it's easier to make a 50 million movie than a 2 million movie because like I talked to David Fincher and he said, if you have 35 million, you need 45 million. If you have 2 million, you need 3 million. That it's always sort of the same scale of heart. I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but it's, it's refreshing to hear somebody say that $50 million is easier. Without a doubt. I, I think even if you grilled Fincher more, he would even agree. I think he's taught like, is there stress in making a movie no matter what size? Of course. Are there difficulties? Of course. Can a big movie go off the rails and become even more difficult? Of course. But by and large, we've made small indies. We've made medium-sized indies. We've made giant movies. No question. The harder ones, and I say this as a producer, the harder ones are the small indies. Wow. Do you read the Drudge Report? No. Okay. Um, Drudge the other day was pretty much overtaken with end of an era talk. Uh, and Hollywood is collapsing because the Oscar ratings were down. And obviously last year was not a great year for movies because there were no movie theaters, among other reasons. Um, just in terms of box office, I mean, it was, it was way off. Are you worried about movies? I, I, not at all. Uh, I, I think the best indication was that while it was being offered free, on streaming, or if you had a subscription on streaming, Kong versus, versus Godzilla still made nearly $50 million on its opening weekend during a pandemic. I have seen this conversation so many times in my life. I've seen it with cable TV. I've seen it with VHS, DVDs. I've seen it with the pandemic. I've seen it with the, you know, the, the right-left divide in our country. You know, of course, the right wing hates Hollywood. We have unions or guilds. You know, we're we have a trade surplus. We're actually a successful U.S. industry that employs a lot of people. So, of course. Um, but uh, no, I'm really not worried. Human beings like to get together and laugh in groups, be scared in groups, be thrilled in groups. Now, does that mean that movies aren't going to change? No, of course not. They are going to change. You're going to see probably more of the IMAX theaters. They'll probably start adding the seats that rumble. You'll start seeing, you know, more sensory experience. You know, at some point, 
15 years from now, it'll probably become 360 degree holograms. You know, does the nature of that experience change? Uh, uh, of course it does, but I, I'm really, truly not worried. Movies aren't going anywhere. Um, you know, ratings for television across the board are down. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Of course, award shows aren't going to be as exciting for people. Um, it was a weird mo year for movies. People didn't get to have that person, that incredible experience of being in a movie theater. So none of that surprises me. And if you notice, they conveniently ignore, you know, other events with the ratings going down, uh, just once again, to target an industry that is heavily unionized and uh, domestic and uh, has a trade surplus. They can't, they can't stand that. Wow. They being? The right wing. Yeah. Well, also 2019 is, I think pretty universally praised as an amazing movie year. And it was one year earlier when there wasn't a pandemic and 2018 is the best year for box office ever. So I just don't totally buy it. Sincere. They're not making a sincere argument. It's not even worth engaging with on its own terms. Yeah. I mean, they did the same thing with the NBA. They, you know, doing tap dances about the NBA championship uh, ratings being down. Well, like, duh, of course, it's all crazy. We're in crazy times now. They're not making sincere arguments. They're trying to destroy enemies. They're trying to put down, once again, unionized industries. In the case of the NBA, uh, 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 an entity that allows African-Americans a, a lot of autonomy and to speak freely. So, uh, you know, and African-American culture is something that right wing has been scapegoating for decades. So none of that's a sincere argument. They're, they're just, they're on permanent attack and power acquisition. There's no actual logic to any of these arguments. So I know you don't think that movies can necessarily help and entertainment can necessarily help, but as a, as a voter, as a person who obviously cares what is the path forward? I mean, is it just beef up the people who you agree with as much as possible, um, build up the base, make sure people turn out? Let, let me be, I, 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 it's not that I don't think movies can help and that art, the arts can help. They definitely can. Uh, mm -hmm. I think what's great about them is they can unify us. Uh, that when there's a big movie that everyone loves, I think that's a good thing. When there's like, you know, just as many right-wingers love stepbrothers as left-wingers, just as many right-wingers love Talladega Nights as left-wingers. So I, I, I think that arts can be really incredible when it comes to that. Um, uh, but I, I don't think you're ever going to make a movie or a song that's going to suddenly have someone go, you know what? You're right. We don't tax billionaires enough or we do need universal health care. Or why do we sell, sell assault weapons retail? Like you're never going to make one singular work that's going to have that moment. But I think as far as like a culture and creating unified experiences, I think the arts are incredibly powerful. And most of all, they remind us when something's just beautiful or something's just moving, like the movie Minari isn't really i mean the fact that it's about immigrants i guess you could say in our crazy times now slightly political but otherwise it's really just a family beautiful family drama about a family that moves to a foreign place yeah. and I, I found it incredibly moving and i thought it could be a movie that could have come out in the 70s the 80s the 90s i would really defy anyone to watch that movie and not have an, a, a a nice experience watching it even a an extreme right winger like well Maybe some extreme right wingers wouldn't, but but for the most part, it's it's just human, which is a good thing. And it's the American dream. I mean, he opens a farm, opens a farm. He starts a farm from nothing, 
and it tries to make a better life. Like, I don't understand how anybody could think that has a political message or is like, I don't know that one. I mean, our country, you know, our country's been had the crap beat out of it for about 40 years. So people are traumatized. They're confused. They're scared. I, you know, I, I really try and be compassionate about it and really try and remember where these people are coming from. Sometimes I get really mad about it. Sometimes I get scared, but at root, you can't do what we've done to this country and not expect this kind of fracturing and this kind of extreme right wing to emerge throughout history. Every single time, this is what's happened. So it's all kind of sadly predictable, but um, Hey, there's some good stuff going on. I don't mean to get that down about it. There has been good stuff happening lately. So um, ultimately I do think, you know, we're getting better as an animal. We're learning, we're growing. There haven't been any big wars in like what? 10 years, 15 years. Like we used to have wars all the time. So it's a, a bunch of good stuff happening. Yeah. Um, By the I'm way, gonna... I, just cheer, I just cheered myself up, not you. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a totally hacky note by just asking if you can give us any preview at all of the upcoming season of Succession that we've been waiting very patiently for um, or don't look up. Yeah, so I'm in the edit room right now for Don't Look Up. I'm here on the Sony lot, which is very deserted, but we've all been double vaccinated and have the air filters and stuff. So we're, we're cutting that movie right now. Um, what can I give you as far as a preview of it? Uh, it's, I'll tell you one thing. It's not like anything I've ever done. I mean, it's definitely a comedy but it's an un- unusual one. It's just, I've never, I've never done a movie this big. You know, mm. it's about the planet in a way. And uh, my editor and I keep talking about like, wow, never done anything like this before. Um, and then as far as succession goes, oh my God. I mean, I'm in a lucky position because I'm a producer. And, uh, you know, after doing the pilot and helping cast the show and, and really being very involved in the first season i now get to watch brilliant jesse armstrong and his team of brilliant writers and actors and directors go make the show and just really enjoy it so one of the funnest moments i had during the whole crazy quarantine was when those scripts came in and i just got to read them like a fanboy i was just pouring through them uh so my one tease on the new season of succession is it's it's so fucking good it's incredible I feel like a lot of people in that family are going to be either anti-vaxxer or anti-masker. Well, they're all, if it, 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 they don't really deal with it too much, but uh, if it mirrors the Murdochs, what they'll do is they'll all get the vaccine. They'll all mask up. They'll all quarantine while making millions off of the news station that tells everyone not to get the vaccine, (laughs) not to mask up. That's the Murdoch way. Oh man. Uh, well, that's all I got. I just really, really appreciate you taking the time and absolutely love Death on the Wing and everything else we've talked about. We haven't even gotten into Step Brothers, Anchorman, all the stuff I grew up loving. So just thank you. My absolute pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me on, man. Yeah, that was Adam McKay. Thank you so much for listening. Death at the Wing is available on Apple, Spotify, wherever you found this. You can find that. It is wonderful. You're going to be really hooked on it as soon as you listen to the first episode and now uh, it is our 100th episode so I want to thank a lot of people who have gotten us to that point first Eric Stoyer the co-host of this podcast his interviews are bliss to me and I really appreciate all the hard work that he puts into them and all of the care and just how 
delightful they are to listen to. It's just listening to normal people having a real conversation where people listen to each other, which is kind of rare nowadays, unfortunately. Also, huge thanks to Caleb Hammond, who has stepped in and done some of our greatest episodes. One of my favorite ones to listen to was his fantastic interview with Charlie Kaufman. Really appreciate all of Caleb's work on the podcast. Thanks also to Dan Delgado, the creator, the host, the producer of the Industry Podcast, which is another podcast presented by Movie Maker. The latest episode is about Bruce exploitation, a <laughs> genre created after the death of Bruce Lee. And thank you also to Aaron Lanton and Keith Denny, my co-hosts on the Low Key Podcast, where we mix it up every week, talking about nerdery, uh, some real soul-searching conversations, some really funny conversations all around what's on TV and movies. They're a huge part of the movie-making podcasting universe, and thanks especially to Deirdre McCarrick, our publisher, to whom I am married, for letting us do all this ridiculous stuff. Thank you very much to you for listening to this. You have already supported us incredibly by listening this far, and I really, really appreciate it. If this is the first episode you've ever listened to, you might also like our interviews with some recent Oscar winners like Emerald Fennel, Daniel Kaluuya, um, Trevon Free. They're all in the archive. Check them out. The best thing you can do to support the show, if you want to do anything else, is review us on Apple or honestly tell a friend, hey, I checked out this interview with Adam McKay. I liked it. I think you would like it too. Your endorsement is the most important thing that you can offer to this or any podcast. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. See you back next week when our guest will be David Oyelowo. And thank you for everything.